John 13, verse 18. I am now referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified. Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. The word of the Lord. One of the more complexing uh, and perplexing realities of the Christian life is how Christians can be so vicious toward other Christians. Now, let me pause here. People are vicious toward other people. It's a human problem. The internet has given new meaning to that word vicious. The anonymity the internet affords gives license to many to be at their worst with impunity. The kind of things that people say to each other and about each other online make one go, Lord, why do you even love the human race? There's so little in us that is lovable. And yet the fact remains that within the Christian community, the venom, the venom that can grab hold of some individuals is hell bound. There are wolves in sheep's clothing. There are bitter roots that grow up and cause trouble and defile many. Now, I have to say that I've been so blessed by the Lord. You know, in almost three decades as a Christian, two plus um, in ministry, the Lord has shown me kindness and grace far beyond anything that I deserve. I talk to other pastors, friends, and they'll tell me story after story of how their sheep bite. And sometimes I want to say to them, that sounds more like a wolf. And yet I find myself at a loss for stories to relate to them. And I'm not looking for any. Let's keep it that way. Okay. And it's not just sheep. Shepherds also can be and are cruel. And so people are vicious, but within the Christian community, that kind of behavior is all the more perplexing and hurtful because of how at odds it is with the Christ we profess. And yet Jesus said, no servant is greater than their master. That applies to foot washing, but it also applies to betrayal, which is what we're going to see today. The betrayal of friendship, deep love, and light. So let's start with the betrayal of friendship. John 13, verse 18. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, I am now referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. Now, in case you missed the last week, we're in our new series, No Greater Love in the Upper Room with Jesus. We're going to spend the next number of months looking at the five chapters leading up to Jesus' arrest in the Gospel of John. These chapters capture the last few hours that Jesus had with his disciples before his arrest, trial, and death. The setting is intimate. It's just Jesus in an upper room with the twelve. He's no longer out and about in the public eye, teaching the crowds, performing miracles. No, he's preparing just a few for his departure and for life and mission after his departure. And so they're having the 
the Passover meal. And while they're doing this, he gets up and he begins to wash their feet. A gesture that shocked them because it was so demeaning a job. But through foot washing, through the washing of feet, he was helping them understand the cleansing power of his death. And he had said to them, you are clean, though not every one of you, referring to Judas. And so now the focus turns to Judas. And he says, I'm not referring to all of you. That is, not all of you are clean. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. Now, why did Jesus choose Judas to be a part of his inner circle? Well, in part, because a friend's betrayal is the worst kind. And Jesus came to walk in our shoes. And so he quotes from Psalm 41. Now, Psalm 41 begins with these words. Blessed are those who have regard for the weak. Blessed are those who have regard for the weak. If you are thinking of becoming a Christian, you, you want to know that the God of Scripture identifies with the weak, the poor, the fatherless, the widows, the immigrant. See, our culture teaches us to identify with whom? The strong, the strong. Our culture teaches us that it's not what you know, it's who you know. And so we want to be well networked because we relate net worth with network. And so we want our network to be full of really good, strong contacts because we think that, hey, if we associate with the strong, they can help us go faster and farther. We all do this. Think back on the mega popular show from the 90s, Friends. Remember that show? What did those six friends have in common? They were young, beautiful, white, successful. Although it was difficult to reconcile how they could afford their rent in Manhattan, Because some of them seem to not do much at all. The show was entertaining, but the longing that it stirred for many was, if only I could be a part of such, that kind of in crowd. And yet the God of Scripture has regard for the weak and identifies with the weak and calls those who follow him to do the same. It's also one of the reasons that we advocate for the unborn. And so Psalm 41 continues. And in that psalm, the, the psalm writer is talking about this extreme, uh, it's in a place of extreme weakness, primarily physical illness, and how his enemies are gloating over what's happening to him and want to, uh, they're wishing him the worst. But it's not just his enemies, it's also his friends. In verse 9, the psalm writer says, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. And that's the verse that Jesus um, quotes, that is quoted here. You see, Jesus saw Judas as a close friend. He had chosen him to be a part of his inner circle. He had let him have um, charge of the finances. He had shared many meals with him. He had given him the most extensive time and teaching. He had disclosed his heart to him. But in time, it became obvious that Judas had turned against the Lord. And the person in Psalm 41, most likely David, sees himself as being an extreme weakness. And that's where the Lord borrows from to express his understanding of what's happening to him. The things that are happening to him. 
in his hour of greatest weakness, his friend whom he trusted, one that shared his bread, turned against him. You see, we turn to, or we tend to think of Jesus, I do, as having great strength. And he did, he does, but not in this hour. This was a dark hour for him as he faces betrayal. He goes on in verse 19, I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. So in these chapters of preparation, Jesus says a number of times, I'm telling you this now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. He's given them a play-by-play of what's about to happen in part to prepare them, but also in part to build their faith. Because while he knows that Judas is a lost cause, the other 11 need all the reassurance they can get. And so he says, I'm telling you these things now so that there's a purpose to what he is saying. And what's that purpose? So that they will believe that he is who he says he is. He says, so that you'll believe that I am who I am. Now, I am who I am refers to the name of God. The personal name of God by which he revealed himself to Moses, the great I am. It's another one of the gifts from this gospel, the gospel of John, the seven I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the true vine. Even as things look bleak, he says, my authority remains. Whoever accepts the one I send accepts me. Whoever accepts me accepts the Father or the one who sent me. You see, when when someone breaks rank from within a group, there can be a domino effect. And that's what's happening in Jesus' inner circle. Someone is breaking rank. But he says to them, I still have authority. All the authority that the Father has given to me. I have all this authority. There's been no loss of this authority from the Father to me, to you, to all who receive you. And church, this is still true today. No loss of authority from the Father to Jesus, to you, to those that he sends us to. It's a great thing. Let's talk about the betrayal of deep love. Verse 21. After he had said this. Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss, to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Prior to my preparation for this message, I don't think that I had reflected at length on how much Judas affected Jesus. I think I had a very matter-of-fact view of the events surrounding the betrayal. Judas was part of the plan. Jesus knew it from the beginning. Scripture had to be fulfilled. All true statements. But they leave out the agony of what life feels like on the ground. No matter how much you have prepared for hardship. I know many of you or all of you know this. Now, when a woman is pregnant, she knows that pain is coming when it's time for the delivery. 
Even if it's their first time, they have either seen or heard uh, other women going through labor and delivery. When my wife Anna was pregnant with our first baby, Rain, she went on full bed rest at 20 weeks. From 20 weeks until one week before the birth. That's a lot of weeks. That's a lot of time. And she could basically do just about nothing. She just had to be in bed. Barely she could make it to the restroom. That was it. So she had a lot of time. And she must have watched, I don't know, over 40 episodes of that show, A Baby's Story. Does any of you know this show? And I just remember, you know, as she would watch this show, and she wrote me into watching it with her a few times, but I remember just saying to her, every episode is exactly the same. Someone was pregnant, a woman was pregnant, and she would prepare the nursery with joy and great expectation, and then things got wild when she went into labor, crazy when she was pushing the baby out, and then joy came when she was holding the baby. Every single episode was the same, and I was like, aren't you sick of this? But she loved it. She loved every single one. Because she, as a first-time-to-be mom, was preparing herself for what was coming her way. And here's the thing, guess what? All that preparation did not make her labor and delivery any less painful. And so I want us to think about Jesus as he actually begins to walk through the betrayal. And it makes sense when we read Jesus was troubled in spirit. He's troubled in his spirit. He had said the same thing earlier in chapter 12. There he said, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I mean, this is incredible. Jesus knew that he had come for the hour. In the Gospel of John, his hour means the time of his passion. His, everything that he's, he's been going through up until now, and he will go through the next day, Friday. And he says, what am I going to do? I, I'm feeling troubled in my spirit. And shall I ask the Father to save me? No. It's for this very reason that I came to this hour. He came to be troubled. He came to suffer. This was exactly what he was here to do. Now, I know that in Gethsemane, he felt intense agony as he was praying. And the disciples are over there and they're sleeping. And he starts praying so intensely that he is sweating drops of blood. And an angel comes and comforts him. But these verses and chapters are helping me just to see more and more that the Passion Week for Jesus, that whole week was a week of great agony. And now, on Thursday evening, as he's preparing the 11 for Judah's betrayal, his spirit is troubled. And in that state, he says with great authority, John says that he testified. He says to them, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And here's why I say that this is the betrayal of deep love. When Jesus says to the disciples, one of you is going to betray me, his disciples stare at each other at a loss as to who of them he meant. Did you hear that? They're at a loss. They have no idea who he's talking about. Which tells us at least two things. Judas 
hid very well his true heart. He knew how to hide his true heart, which is scary because the same can happen to all of us. In various paintings of Jesus with the, with the 12, any three-year-old could easily pick out who Judas is in that painting. Do you know what I'm talking about? Because they always draw Judas with a pointy hooked nose and one eyebrow is raised and his body's like turned away from Jesus. It's like, come on. That's not what was happening. None of them knew. The disciples had no idea. But what's even more amazing, Jesus did not love Judas any less. He did not love him any less. Think about this. From, from all the interactions that he had through the years with Judas, with Judas and the 12, he never gave even a hint that something was up. Even when he was washing their feet, he didn't skip Judas or give him an extra intense scrub, make him bleed a little. None of that. They had no idea. And I want us to sit here for a minute because doesn't the depth of Jesus' love Expose the shallowness of ours. Proverbs 12, 16 says, A fool shows his annoyance at once, but a prudent person overlooks an insult. We show our annoyance. It's easy for us to show. You know, it's easy for people to tell when we don't like, like them. Or when we don't like someone. You know, we think we're, we do a great job of hiding it. We don't. People can pick up on body language and gestures and things we say. Subtle things. So we show our annoyance. And sometimes we're happy to show it. But that's not even what we're talking about. We're not talking about annoyance. We're not talking about someone make, making us annoyed. Uh, make, vexing us or irritating us. We're talking about betrayal. Betrayal. And as deep as Judas's betrayal was to be, Jesus did not treat him any different than he did the disciples who were loyal. No greater love had ever been shown to Judas. And I wonder how many of Jesus' words in his teaching ministry were aimed specifically at Judas. Jesus trying to reach his heart. No person can serve two masters, Judas. Either he will hate the one or love the other. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, a good tree bears good fruit, Judas. And a bad tree bears bad fruit. A person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions, Judas. I mean, I just think about how much the Lord must have tried to reach him and plead for his soul. May our ability to love like the Savior grow. But with this charged statement, one of you is going to betray me. The disciples are shocked. They're at a loss. And it's here that we're introduced to the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. That description is given to also the same disciple that's standing at the cross with the women, with Jesus' mother. And then 
after the resurrection, and then by the Sea of Tiberias, um, after the resurrection, that is. And then at the end, the last few verses, authorship of this gospel is attributed to him, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, that description, the disciple whom Jesus loved, has been most commonly um, identified or given to John, the son of Zebedee. Although he does not tell us that himself. Now, why? Why would the author of this gospel not tell us his name directly? Well, so that PhD students could have material for their dissertations. Quite a few have been written. But seriously, why? One of the things that this allows him to do is it allows him to highlight the special relationship that he had to the Lord without drawing attention to himself. So John is testifying to the Lord's incredible love. And because the, the, the moment was so tense and this disciple has a, a special relationship with the Lord or because he's reclining next to him, he's sitting next to him at the table or for both reasons, Peter asks this disciple to ask Jesus who it is. Who is he talking about that's going to betray him? And so we get a sense for how tense the moment got. How dark it was. Because Peter, overconfident, says whatever he's thinking, Peter does not speak out. And I think that there is warning and hope for us here. Because even as Judas the betrayer comes into focus, so does the disciple whom Jesus loved, who also deeply loved the Savior. Let's finish with a betrayal of light. So the disciple whom Jesus loved asked him, Lord, who is it? Verse 26, Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread... He went out and it was night. So Jesus answers the question, Lord, who is it? But it seems he answers it only loud enough for that disciple sitting, reclining next to him to hear. Because when in just a couple of uh, verses later, Jesus says to Judas, whatever you're about to do, do quickly. None of the disciples know what he's talking about. They still don't know. They think that because Judas has charge of the money that Jesus has given him instructions to go and make arrangements for the festival or to give something to the poor. They still don't know. But I want us to focus on how Jesus answers. He says to John, it is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Now that was a very, a very intimate gesture. Think about it. Have you ever been to a restaurant like Bonefish Grill? And you go and you go with your family or friends and you go for a special event. And they bring you out the bread and the oil and the spices. And so you dip the bread uh, and you're doing this while you're waiting for the food that you've ordered. Except that the bread and the oil and the spices are so good that some members of my family get full 
on the bread before they even bring out the food that we're paying for. This can really rile me up. It's like, oh, but that's a separate topic. But think about this. You're doing this whole thing. You're dipping the bread. Here's the thing. The person that you give the peas that you dipped in the oil, okay, let's say that you do that for someone, that person is very close to you, right? It's only going to be someone that's very close to you. You would not dip the bread and give it to your regional manager at a business lunch. That's a big no-no. And so this is a very intimate gesture. That word translated bread means morsel. So it could be a piece of bread. It could be a piece of meat. It's a choice piece that the host of the meal, in this case, Jesus, is giving. And he's giving it to Judas. It's a sign of honor. It's a sign of love. But here, Scripture says that Jesus receives the morsel. And it says that as soon as he took the bread, Satan entered into him. And then verse 30 says, as soon as he had taken the bread, Judas went out and it was night. And it was night. John wants us to feel the atmosphere, the tension, the darkness. Yes, it was nighttime. But as he often does, John is saying more. Remember back in chapter 3 when Nicodemus comes to Jesus. When did he come to Jesus? At night, in hiding. Then later on, Jesus says, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming. When no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. But his time was up. And Judas was betraying the light of the world. And giving himself over to the deeds of darkness. About that same evening when this is all happening. John had already said. The devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. And then a few days before. When Jesus was in Bethany. Before getting into Jerusalem for Passover week. Mary anointed Jesus with a very expensive perfume and Judas did not like it. He said, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Seems like he cares so much about the poor. But then John tells us he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Do you see this? So these scriptures help us understand what's going on with Judas. Judas never belonged to the light. He never belonged to Jesus. He was never cleansed by Jesus' word because he never received it. He had heard that word multiple times, but he never received it. He was merely only around Jesus, not with him. On the contrary, the whole time that he's with Jesus, he's hardening his heart to the Lord. He's hardening his heart to God. He was a thief and stayed a thief. His character and morality were not transformed. He belonged to the darkness. He belonged to the devil. And therefore, the devil could use him for his purposes. And so, as Jesus gives the morsel to Judas, one commentator says, Judas received the morsel, but not the love. And so Satan entered into him. And I want to leave you with three exhortations. Take heed that you are not a Judas. 
take heed that you are not a Judas. Judas is an extreme figure in the New Testament, in all of the Bible, because of this final act of betraying the Son of God, handing him over to his enemies. But what was going on in Judas's heart the whole time that he is with Jesus is the same thing that can go on in your heart and my heart. He was around Jesus, but not with Jesus. He was a thief and stayed a thief. No change. Even though he had heard the word of Christ again and again and had seen his glory, had seen his presence. And my concern for some of you is that you get a sense of comfort from being around Jesus, but not with him. His word and his death have not cleansed you. Your character and morality have not changed. You are a lustful person years ago. You still are. You were greedy years ago. You still are. You were consumed by anger years ago. You still are. You were vain years ago. You still are. You were dishonest years ago. Still the same. Church. These are works of darkness. These are the works of the devil. Not of the good and pure creator. The maker of heaven and earth. The maker of you. The danger for you. If you've been around Jesus but not cleansed by his death. Not cleansed by his word. Is that you've been hardening your heart toward him. Because you cannot be exposed to him. You cannot have access to him of any, by, of any length and remain the same. That's impossible. That cannot happen. Either your heart is more tender now, softer, or your heart is rock that will not break. And so I implore you, I implore you, come to Jesus Stop merely hanging around him. Come to him. Confess your sins to him. Turn to him. Beg him. Beg him to give you a hatred for your sin. It's not too late. It's not too late. But God will not be mocked. So please take heed that you are not a Judas. Also, loyalty to Jesus opens you to betrayal. Loyalty to Jesus opens you to betrayal. He said, right there in the context of this meal, he says to them, no servant is greater than his master. And I know many of you know the betrayal of a friend. A friend's betrayal is the worst kind. And Jesus knows what it feels like. I know women who have been betrayed by their husbands. And the pain hurts more deeply than if he had died. Many men have experienced the same. Jesus knows betrayal. He knows how to comfort the betrayed, the abandoned, whatever the reasons. So let him comfort you. 
please let him comfort you. Do not give your betrayer more power over your life by remaining in hatred, in bitterness, in anger, or by staying away from the only one who can heal your deep, deep wound. And he knows how deep it runs. He knows, little one, he knows. I've known people who've been betrayed by someone they trusted and loved so deeply and it knocks them off course for a long time. And if that's you, please come to him. Let him comfort you. He's the only one who can, and he knows betrayal. And then finally, long, long for a deeper love for the Savior. Long for it. Let's long together for a deeper love for the Savior. I felt a lot preparing for this message. Taking in this passage, these scriptures, allowing myself to feel the darkness surrounding the Lord, the deep agony of his soul. Did his hand tremble as he dipped the bread for Judas? Was he trembling? Did his lip quiver? The creator of the universe, did his lip quiver as he said, one of you is going to betray me. I want Jesus to become more real, more human to me. So that I can also marvel even all the more that he is the divine word become flesh. And in all of that, I want to long, I want to long, and I want to do that with you. Long for a deeper love for the Savior so that sin will grow faint and distant and distasteful. And my God will grow in presence and stature and worth. Worth. His worth. And I want all of that to happen right here in my heart. And I pray, I pray that our good, gracious God would do the same for you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is difficult to do justice to this text of scripture. But I pray because you're not limited to our weakness, to my weakness, that by your Holy Spirit, you would apply these verses to all of our lives as we need to hear them. We pray, dear God, we beg you, I pray, Lord, that you would cultivate in us a longing for the Savior, a deeper love for him. I pray that he'd become more and more real for us. I pray that we'd be able to cry as we see him in agony here, troubled. He's troubled in his spirit. Oh, Jesus. Help us, please. It's so easy for us to be in love and long for 
all kinds of things and people that are not you. Help us. I pray, dear God, for those who know betrayal. And they have deep, deep wounds, God. And I just ask you to draw them deeper and deeper into fellowship with you, inviting them into that upper room with you, God. Let them know your peace. Touch them. Touch the part of their soul, the part of their body that has a sour memory. And heal them, I pray, dear God. Or even right now. I pray, Lord, for all of us, as all of us can have a seed of Judas in us. And I pray, dear God, that you would convict us. Convict us, Lord, if our morality and character have not changed. We're the same. Struggling with the same things to the same degree, the same ways. Because we've not surrendered that part of us, of our flesh, to you. Convict us and grant us repentance. And Father, I pray for all of us to know also that as we repent and we turn to you, that your blood, that your blood, Jesus, covers all of our sin and you forgive them completely. So help us not walk in condemnation. Lord, we love you. And we thank you that there is no greater love than has ever been shown to mankind. And I just pray that each one of us would know ourselves to be as loved. If we have placed all our trust in you, that we would know ourselves to be as loved as John knew himself to be loved by the Savior. We all are the disciple whom Jesus loved. Help us know this and believe it. We love you. We trust you. We live to proclaim your worth. Oh yes, we live to proclaim your worth, our God. And we do so now with the confidence of your blood, your death having covered all our sin. Yesterday, today, and forever. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.